Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope for all of you that your weekend has started off well. You know, this is a rare um, coincidence here. I can honestly admit that when I usually do podcasts, nine times out of ten, it is during the evening. But then again, for some of you, wherever you may live in the world or could be traveling, um, destination-wise, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere around the world, you're obviously in a different uh, time zone. But nonetheless, um, I'm glad to be on the air. And, you know, once again, uh, we are uh, still discussing uh, the topic series of uh, Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. We are now at the heart of the actual battle. In other words, we've talked about some skirmishes that have occurred that uh, you know usually lead up to the battle, or the major battle, that is. But we are now at the point where the, that the major battle itself is going, to, is going to take place. And so in this uh, podcast series, we're going to learn about um, fighting. That is, who, it's not so much a question of who fires first, who retaliates, but we're going to um, get into the heart of how this battle is being fought, how momentum stays on one side for a while, and then how momentum itself gradually shifts away from the side who's winning to the side that uh, had to go into a retreat mode, but somehow was able to reform and eventually be prepared to conduct a major assault of their own. You know, I will say that, yes, war is not a game. It never should be a game because war does, war itself does um, produce scars, big and small, Obviously, for survivors of any war, the scars can be so bad to where it can be just very uh, downright painful to talk about. For some survivors, it may take a lifetime before they can really open up about it. There were those whom obviously survived in this battle who uh, never forgot what took place and lived uh, long enough to be able to tell the story about this battle to the next generation in line, uh, and so forth. But uh, but let's get our uh, seatbelts fastened. Um, I know that may sound a little odd to say, but by fastening our seatbelts, we are ready to go uh, with another um, <clears throat> top with another segment to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution's uh, Southern Campaign. So let's get this show ready and let's be prepared to hear about what is actually taking place in the midst of a battle. Our leadoff question will be the following. Right as Utah Springs battle began, how were the American militiamen placed up front? You know, being placed up front is one thing, but to me, I should often be reminded that as we are now in 1781, it's fair to say that General Nathaniel Green obviously believes in not placing all of his forces up front, but if you're going to be placed up front, there should be a way to, there obviously needs to be a way to hold the line, and there obviously needs to be a way on how to go about um, moving back after you've fired your, um, after firing the first uh, shots. But I do know in this case with Utah Springs, the militia, the American militiamen rather, were sent to fight in the open woods, which included getting positioned on both sides of the road surrounding them. I like this uh, strategy, on both sides of the road. So this way, we're not putting everybody in one position, being the center, so that if one side comes under attack, the other side can ultimately come to the other side's um, assistance and be able to um, provide uh, cover and to be able to back them up so that um, so that further um, onslaught can be um, reduced. Now the American militia fought well. You know, in years past, the militia often ran scared as soon as they saw British bayonets fixed with the charge. Of course, that happened at Camden, but you know we can't blame the Americans. 
for what happened at Camden, we have to thank their leader, uh, being Horatio Gates, who was then the commander of the Southern Continental Army, largely due to the strategies that he put into place. You know, the militiamen were not prepared, uh, but then again, the army itself was not prepared to go against um, some of the best uh, British um, soldiers at that time. But nonetheless, the militia has come a long way, and the militia fought well here at Utah Springs, and they went about holding their ground effectively against British regulars. British regulars, kind of like the equivalent of American Continentals. Um, so I'm beginning to wonder, okay, if the American militia have fought so well, it leads me to wonder then how many shots have they fired off? Because I know at Calpens, based upon having read um, information about the Battle of Calpens from January of 1781, the instructions were um, given by General Green that and others uh, below him in terms of uh, officer leadership at the militia were to fire two shots and then uh, properly retreat back, obviously doing so without fear, but by setting the militia up front, this was their first um, official test to prove that they could do exa the exact opposite, and that was to, to go face-to-face -face with the militia and not, um, and not retreat in a, um, and not retreat out of their wits. Now, uh, who was governor of South Carolina in 1781? I don't know if many of you all would know this, but I found it interesting that he was uh, present at the battle. He, um, he was governor uh, before 1781, and uh, the year before saw this man, or, or rather I should say saw this governor, have to retreat from Charleston all the way up to the South Carolina, North Carolina line to avoid becoming a um, not just so much a prisoner of war, but one who could have uh, not only just become a prisoner, but perhaps be sent back to be sent to England, three thousand miles across the ocean, to be tried for treason and ultimately die a traitor's death. His name was uh, John Rutledge. And John Rutledge would become um, would go on to become one of the signers to the United States Constitution um, in terms of a delegation from South Carolina. John Rutledge uh, observed the militiamen nearby. This is the governor, folks, and he confirmed to um, officers like Nathaniel Green and um, and others above. Uh, within the uh, inner ranks that um, Nathaniel Green himself held, Rutledge confirmed that the militiamen had fired 17 times. That's, I mean, we're not talking the traditional two or three times, folks. 17 times. That's pretty amazing. That tells us something about, the, about these militiamen. This is a far different outlook versus what happened back in August of 1780, 13 months earlier, at the infamous debacle at Camden. The militia ran for themselves, ran for their lives, only to be routed in a short time span. So it, it tells us just how much the militia have changed, but it's all because of leadership. It's, it might be fair to say that, you know, had Nathaniel Green not arrived, yes, the militia could have seen some changes, but had Nathaniel Green not been present, who's to say that the changes that might have occurred would have been for the better to where the militia would be where they are now, uh, not just so much morale-wise, but leadership-wise. South Carolina militiamen uh, from William Dobain James and William Vaughn watched British troops from the 63rd and 64th regiments fire at Americans only to have their shots go five feet higher than normal. Why does that matter? Because the British infantry were known for firing too high in battle. This was largely attributed due to poor training and a lack of consistent targeting practice. So sometimes, you know, I guess I should say that, you know, we don't have uh, shooting ranges like we do today where people can go and and practice their firing but it might be fair to say that um, back in colonial days that there had to have been some place where uh, where um, hunters could go in order to um, maintain some form of consistency with their shooting 
But I also wonder if because of where the British were, not just so much where they were, but obviously they weren't familiar perhaps with the terrain and that probably could be why their uh, shots were off in terms of inaccuracy. Uh, given how well American militia forces had held their ground against the British regulars, what other actions ensued next? The militia under Lieutenant Colonel Wade Hampton and Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson's command engaged against British Major John Marshbank's seasoned veterans along the outskirts of the main battlefield. Okay, so let's keep in mind that not all the fighting is going to be uh, confined to just one area of a battlefield, or let alone just the main um, section of the battlefield. Brigadier General Andrew Pickens's troops exchanged volley firing with the third with Britain's uh, third regiment along the open woods above the road, and below the road, um, Francis Marion's troops fought against the 64th uh, regiment. So. Let's just keep in mind that the fighting is not confined. Fighting itself does take place, but it's not always against one unit of troops and the other. There is fighting going on amongst other uh, groups. So in other words, it's not like, okay, here we got the militia in line ready to fire, and now we're just sitting back waiting for our turn. No, I mean, you've got to be you've got to be moving. Um, you know, I, I might be fair to say that the only people who probably aren't fighting just yet could be the reserves, those whom are um, on standby but are also nearby to where they could be asked to go at a moment's notice. Now, based on archaeological findings uh, from within the last 20 to 25 years, because there were archaeological findings that um, had taken place in the early 2000s at uh, Utah Springs, but based upon the findings, uh, uh, archaeologists were able to determine that the battle lines uh, were around uh, 600 yards west of the brick house, where the British encampment um, stood. There was a hand-to-hand -hand combat was very tense to where militia forces came upon fighting against a British um, bayonet charge. And this bayonet charge, um, you know, yes, you would think nine times out of ten if the militiamen saw the, the British coming with their bayonets that they would just uh, drop their rifles or just start running for their lives. But it turns out that even as the British were beginning their bayonet charge advancement, that the uh, militiamen did hold their ground. But, of course, we have to wonder how long can they hold their ground, but, but as of right now, knowing that they aren't, Running and fleeing only to have the lines break is a good sign. Was it common uh, for family relatives to serve together within the militia? Yes. Prior to and going into Utah Springs battle, many family relatives fought side by side during the Carolinas campaign. Well, wouldn't it be fair to say that this is a family affair? I mean, think about it. It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm going to serve in the militia because it's my duty. No, as a family, you know, we're going to do this because we've got to think about not only what lies at stake in the present, but how how is our family going to survive in the future? What happens if our land is confiscated by the British? What happens if we lose everything that we've worked so hard for? There's so many unknowns, but it is fair to say that that uh, families did fight uh, side by side, father, son, brother, brother, um, father, and um, nephew. I mean, you name it. I mean, families stuck together and ought to have stuck together in the worst of times, or rather I should say in the most challenging of times like what we're seeing in uh, 1781. Now, as the war, as the Revolutionary War progressed, what fighting formation technique did British troops adapt well to? Open order. Now, I had never heard of uh, open order until I had um, read this book, and I also uh, decided it was best to uh, look up uh, what open order uh, was all about. Uh, 
but it's a very um, interesting uh, technique. It's one that enabled extra space for where the troops themselves could spread apart. In other words, you know, traditional 18th century style uh, linear warfare has troops. They're almost placed side by side. And of course, when you are placed nearly side by side, the intention is to um, get a, a deadly volley. In other words, by firing a, a mass, for troops to fire a mass volley into the opposition, that's where you hope that you can not only knock down soldiers on the other end, but you hope that the, that their lines are so broken to where you could ultimately um, fix your bayonets and start charging at them if you know that they can no longer hold their lines. But with open order, there's more space for troops to spread apart, and not just to, by spreading apart, but they can oversee some of the furthest points of an area, which would enable them to conduct operations more efficiently in terrain where features like trees and shrubbery greatly exist. Well, you know, is it fair to say that open order could be their version of maybe doing um, something that could be considered irregular or uh, guerrilla style? I mean, think about it. you You're wanting to conduct operations in, within terrain where features like trees and shrubbery exist. Shouldn't trees and shrubbery provide an extra wall of protection where you can have a, you know, camouflage-like disguise? Uh, you won't be um, easily spotted by the enemy? Perhaps so. So for the British, it's fair to say that open order has been to their advantage, and I'm beginning to wonder if they will use this um, technique at some point at Utah Springs. We'll have to find out. The Revolutionary War saw British troops reduce their lines from three ranks down to two, which enabled commanders to move more swiftly along with placing better emphasis on where to focus firing enemy upon uh, per direction. Now, is it safe to say U Utah Springs Battle eventually got broken down into a series of smaller exchanges that remained intense between both sides? Yes. For starters, the American left side came under severe, or rather I should say intense fire from British Major John Marshbank's forces, resulting in the wounding of American Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson. This eventually led other militia units to fall back, given intense actions spurred on by the British 64th Regiment. Secondly, in the midst of smaller, intense fighting, some American militiamen panicked. I hate to say this, some of them panicked in their retreat, whereas others, militiamen, firmly held their ground during up-close fighting. Well, you know, think about this. The militiamen have fired 17, on average, from what Governor John Rutledge saw. He said to the um, American officers that they uh, that the American militiamen had fired 17 times. Maybe not all of them, but most of them had fired at least 17 times. So I would say that at some point, I mean, given that they've fired up to 17 times, maybe we can't blame them, some of them, for, for um, fleeing, even though they're, um, they're in panic mode in their retreat. Could it be that they are just simply getting worn out? I mean, after all, it is a hot day. I mean, we don't have Gatorade with us, folks. We don't have water, bottled water with us. I mean, we just don't have time to, unfortunately, we won't have time to open up a drink and, and uh, stay hydrated. I mean, we are in the midst of a very um, intense uh, battle. So I'm beginning to wonder, okay, if some militiamen are holding their ground and others are in uh, panic mode, what's going to happen next? Can the Americans still hold their ground? Well, before we can find that out, it, it might be worth um, n mentioning this, that militia casualties actually were not high. 25 were killed, 113 wounded. Obviously, the uh, whenever uh, soldiers are wounded in battle, I think it might be fair to say that those wounded versus those being killed were higher 
but sometimes those who were killed versus those who were wounded could have been the exact opposite. But here at, at Utah Springs, that the militia casualties were actually not high. 25 killed, 113 wounded out of nearly 1,400 militiamen present. The militia lost strength due to having fought since early morning. Okay, so they've been fighting since er the early morning hours. They've probably been fighting. Would it be fair to say that they've been fighting before uh, 9 a.m.? Yes. Could they have started engaging in skirmish activity perhaps as early as 6 a.m.? More than likely so. Could it also be that perhaps the militiamen ran low on ammunition? Yes. You know, when you run low on ammunition, it is fair to um, do what is necessary in terms of needing to retreat. And, you know, we can't, you know, control people's emotions. But if you know that you're running low on ammunition, you know, I could see how one might panic and, 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 and go as far as um, retreating, but doing so, um, hopefully so, in a manner that doesn't cause further panic with other units to where the whole mission itself just collapses. So, yes, the militia, um, <clears throat> some militiamen ran, <clears throat> were low on ammunition. In the end, um, disorganization got the militia. However, General Green saw their retreat where oversaw their retreat where they got replaced by North Carolina Continentals. Okay, so North Carolina Continentals are going to fill the line next where the militia are and take on this, um, and they will be the ones that will be uh, taking on the fight next. There's a term called the passage of lines. Passage of lines refers to replacing troops under fire. So yes, the militiamen were under intense fire, and the North Carolina Continentals now partake in what's called the Passage of Lines. It's basically, you know, like the equivalent uh, phrase transfer of power or transition of uh, power from one group or from one party or unit to another. <clears throat> Whom commanded the North Carolina Continentals? Well, um... You had Lieutenant Colonel John B. Ash of the 1st North Carolina Regiment. Then you had uh, Major Redding Blount of the 2nd. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Dixon of the 3rd. The North Carolina Continentals engaged um, British troop counterparts through open field engagement, doing so through trading volleys. So, yes, the you know the american militiamen may have stood side by may have stood on opposite ends of the road but eventually the fighting did spread um into more open field terrain in, with the north carolina continentals where they along with the uh british troops or the regulars engaged in open field uh, engagement through trading volleys now, the North Carolina Continentals uh, did halt the British troops whom had driven back the militia, but in the midst of hand-to-hand -hand combat, there was something that the North Carolina Continentals lacked that, that the British had. The North Carolina Continentals lacked bayonets. Man, lacking bayonets. Oh my gosh, to me that is, um, that's going to put you at a bad disadvantage. Because for one, you're an easy target. And two, when the British decide that it's time to fix their bayonets, and they see that, well, of course, they already had their bayonets fixed, ready to go against the militia, but perhaps another line of uh, regulars was in this fight now. So when the time comes for them to fix their bayonets and the North Carolina Continentals don't have theirs, that's going to really... Um, to me, that'll be a sign of make or break. Well, unfortunately for Major Redding Blount's 2nd North Carolina Regiment, he lost roughly two-thirds of his troop force, being 67%. So when the North Carolina Continentals fell back, those, of, those whom did not um, get killed or wounded, General Green sent the top troops, 
being the Maryland and Virginia Continentals, whom stood in formation where their weapons got held in the right hand at the side and were instructed to charge the field with bayonets fixed. This tells you something right here, that perhaps, perhaps I don't know if there was a plan all along to um, have one group with, with bayonets, the other without, but the bottom line is that Nathaniel Green already has his plan in place to send his best troops into the field with their bayonets fixed. The unique thing about the Maryland and Virginia Continentals is that they have been veterans of the Revolutionary War based upon their overall years of experienced fighting. They've been at this for some time. They went about successfully moving forward with the bayonet charge attacking with the bayonet charge attack driving British forces back within their camp as the Virginian as the Virginia Continentals got within 40 yards of British soldiers they poured out a barrage of fire and the entire second line advanced along the first line the British 63rd and 64th regiments felt the wrath of the Virginia and Maryland Continentals destructive firing to where they found cover or let alone safety they did find cover and safety believe it or not folks per the New York volunteers whom stayed behind at the brick house and barn uh, which was uh, part of their um, encampment and the New York volunteers will be mentioned uh, more so as this pod as this podcast uh, segment that we're on right now um, is being discussed because the New York Volunteers there's a reason why the New York Volunteers stayed behind. Is it fair to say that they were uh, the reserves? Yes, but they stayed behind because if because if they didn't, then the brick house, this brick house and barn, are gonna is gonna be totally up for grabs. In other words, whoever takes it not only has it. But it could also mean that, say, if the enemy gets their hands on the brick house in the barn, being that of the Americans, because, you know, the British had it, but if but given if they don't have someone there to protect it, then it's just going to become um, an open, um, it's going to be up for grabs. Uh, in other words, so you want to make sure that you have people uh, on reserve, uh, standby, especially within the confines of your encampment to protect whatever is uh, necessary. Over an hour's fighting into Utah Springs, the, the battle saw British and Loyalist troops fight solid strong, but now they were beginning to show signs of breaking. They had held off American militia forces to driving back one officer's multiple regiments. The British were unable to rotate troops in the same manner as the Americans had done so. The British camp was overrun by Americans, where 300 British got taken prisoner along with losing two guns, in this sense, cannons. You know, it's one thing to be able to rotate troops, and we've seen G General Green do just that. The British haven't been able to do this, and it could be that, for one, they don't have as many men as the, uh, as the Americans do, but two... As best as they have done with uh, forming their line of um, oper of attack operation, they are missing stuff. They are they didn't obviously have a plan ahead of time as to how they're going to rotate men while in the midst of fighting. Because we do have tendencies to forget sometimes that that fighting isn't always confined to just one unit against another, and that depending on how leadership. Um, conducts a battle, that is the commanders conducting the battle, there are ways to go about uh, rotating troops in the midst of fire, in the midst of uh, actual battle. But it all comes down to the commanders and how they, um, and how they uh, go about effectively coordinating um, the battles themselves. And I can honestly say that perhaps it is uh, definitely fair to admit that because the British had struggled for the most part, with understanding the terrain of South Carolina that and being at a disadvantage with not having um, as many horses as, say, that the Americans had, that put them at the disadvantage to where they weren't able to, to um, coordinate intelligence gatherings um, in advance 
and had this had been the case where they had more enough horses, they might have been able to have uh, planned some um, things differently uh, before this uh, actual battle commenced. That's all speculation, all circumstantial, but sometimes when you when one side has an advantage to having more horses than the other, you know it's one it's not just so much who has the, the most horses over the other, but it, the horses are what provide faster means of transportation in the 18th century. And, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm riding on a horse. It's I'm trying to relay information back to my superior commanding officer in a in as quickly, in as quick as a manner as possible, but by doing so on horseback. Because, you know, relaying information via horseback is going to um, provide you, is going to, uh, result in uh, faster timing versus uh, walking in long terrain that from just from getting from point A to point B could take an hour or longer. So we just have to be reminded that uh, transportation is not something to take for granted, that even in the 18th century, moving from point A to point B could make all the, could make or break in, um, in getting um, what was necessary um with regards to uh, battle preparation ahead of time. Sorry for the rambling, but it is just uh, important to be reminded of that stuff. Now, had confusion spread rapidly uh, within the British Army in the midst of their being worn down by a never-ending barrage from American troops per their formations? Yes, some British troops left the battlefield only to retreat towards the Charleston Road, Heavy fire uh, from the Americans alone caused the British to retreat further than originally planned. So yeah, it's one thing to retreat, but if you don't have a true definitive spot on where to go about um, starting and ending your retreat, then how are you going to be able to get all of those um, soldiers back in line to where you might be able to mount a surprise attack? In other words, do you still have it in you to mount another surprise attack, depending on how far you've gotten uh, pushed back? Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee oversaw the Legion infantry maintain its position on the far right to where they unleash deadly rounds of fire against an advancing British left whose flank, and of course if those of you who are military experts know what a flank is, it's the rear side. So the British left's flank um, rear side got exposed to where they were thrown into complete disarray. This was the 64th Regiment. Now, what American officers' troops took on Major John Coffin's cavalry? How about Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Hammond? He is a native of Virginia, fought with the Virginia militia at Point Pleasant, what we now know as present-day West Virginia, and Great Bridge uh, near present-day uh, Chesapeake in December of 1775. He would have uh, been on this. He would have uh, fought alongside with uh, James Monroe, um, who was a student at William and Mary at that time, but um, but halted his studies to fight against um, Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment at the Battle of Great Bridge. Hammond's forces encountered uh, different, or I should say, odd realignments by the British that eventually led to a climactic turning point at Utah Springs. Now, this climactic turning point can't all be told at one time, but but by mentioning it now, uh, you all will um, eventually, um, we will eventually learn just how climactic the turning point was. Of course, some of you are probably thinking, are the British going to actually win this battle? But you know, but battles themselves have numerous uh, climactic turning points, big and small. I do know that um, Colonel Richard Campbell got wounded on horseback. Virginia and Maryland Continentals led the way in pushing the British back. Lieutenant Colonel Wade Hampton's unit captured roughly 100 men. The British ran into the open um, terrain surrounding the brick house where Major Henry Sheridan's New York volunteer troop forces remained in place. 
Behind the brick house at the intersection, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart went about halting the route and regrouping his troops. So there is a lot of, uh, lot of action going on here. A lot of unknowns, but yet there is still, I'm still wondering for the British if there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I know you all are thinking, now wait a minute, Kirk, who are you pulling for here, the Americans or the British? But if you are on the side of the British, you have to wonder, okay, we've got soldiers um, making their way back to this brick house. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart has now been able to halt this route. He's in the works of halting it. And now we have to wonder what game tricks, what tricks does he have up his sleeve that could catch the entire American army off guard? Uh, and what, what it is is the American army that's present. So we have a lot of unknowns still, and, and we are going to eventually get to those answers. So let's find out some more information here. The Maryland troops under the command of Lieutenant Isaac Duval of the 1st Maryland got near the brick house, only to see Lieutenant Duval be hit while having cheered three times to motivate his men. In other words, they weren't down, but motivating them by saying, hey, you know, look, we've got them. We've got them right where they didn't expect to be. So how about, you know, how about let's celebrate here and let out a few cheers? You know, it's one thing to celebrate, but when you're, but I don't think you should be celebrating right in the heart of enemy territory. Because if you do that, it's not so much a question of infuriating the enemy, but you never know where the enemy could be lurking or having retreated to, to where they might be able to um, pull off a barrage of fire. Well, sadly for um, Lieutenant Duval, he got hit. And... 30 minutes after being hit, he died. So it just goes to show you that just when you think you have the um, enemy on the run and the enemy is is no long no longer has it in them to fight, it you know, it it's not over till the fat lady is sung. I don't know if that phrase existed back in the revolutionary war time, but in other words, it's not over till it's over. So, you know, it's never good to celebrate early. The American Continental's advancement began taking a toll against them. And we're going to find out here shortly, but, but now things are gradually starting to change. The British regiments of the 3rd and the 84th fell back uh, towards the Brick House, where Major Henry Sheridan's New York volunteer troops went about firing upon Colonel Lee's infantry. Sheridan's men had swivel guns, and in case some of you don't know what swivel guns are, they are small mobile artillery pieces. They often fire one-pounders. So, you know, it's easy to assume that when we see cannons, for example, or in this case swivel guns, that they all just fire one, they, they all fire one kind of um, shot. Uh, I should keep in uh, we should keep in mind that whenever we hear of 24-pounders, we usually need to think of... Um, either uh, by sea or, um, or in the sense of um, higher fortification. But usually we're, when we think of cannons, um, cannonballs being fired, probably one to three pounders at, at best. The firing got so bad to where the Americans retreated back towards the camp. So, you know, yes, there's this brick house in the barn that's in, that's, in the same uh, encampment grounds, but it would be fair to say that not everything's all clustered or uh, or stacked against each other. In other words, it's not a subdivision, but there's but it is fair to say that perhaps that this barn and, and the brick house are spaced. They may not be super spaced out, but spaced out enough to where there's enough shelter for the uh, British troops to be able to. Um, have um, better protection to where they're not sitting ducks. So the fighting, or rather I should say most of this intense fighting, is in the center along the road and in front of the brick house. can only imagine what all that intense fighting must have been like. Not just to have been from a soldier's perspective, but just observing, uh, given that what archaeologists had found, uh, you know, 20-some years earlier in the early 2000s, realizing that that the um, that the battle lines were 600 
I'll reiterate it here in a moment, that the battle lines had been um, figured to be at around 600 yards west of the brick house where the British encampment laid. So obviously uh, terrain has changed over some time, but just knowing where all that was taking place in relation to where the brick house lied. Did uh, General Green order in his reserve fighting units, which included uh, cavalry and infantry? Yes, Green's focus centered upon having the cavalry and infantry attacking on the left, which resulted in their delivering blows against Major Marshbank's troops. All right, this is good. All right, the Americans are still fighting to the best of their abilities. We're, we're still holding our ground but we're also still able to deliver some blows. However, General Green did make... There was a flaw in this uh, tactical strategy. He overlooked what was happening along the front, a.k.a. the center, because remember, the, the most intense fighting in this battle is in the center, along the road in front of the brick house. General Green doesn't... It's probably based upon where General Green is positioned. And remember, we don't have cell phones back then, folks, so one commander can't be calling up the other to say, hey, General Green, uh, we've got to, the fighting is really bad here. We've got to, you got to move your forces over to this point as quickly as possible. So for General Green, you know, he's, he's making as many observations as he can from all different directions, but he can only probably look out but so far I don't believe he would have had a set of binoculars on him at this time, but for General Green, he unfortunately he overlooked what was happening along the front as he didn't fully realize the main forces of troops fighting were about to come apart. For Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, Lieutenant Colonel Wade Hampton, and Captain Robert Kirkwood, they were all given orders by General Green to force out Major Marshbanks from his current position being the bushes surrounding the creek. The planned attack that was to take place was to, uh, um, was to attack Major Marshbanks' light infantry. It went as planned, but it yielded bad results for the Americans. Lieutenant Colonel Washington sought to outmaneuver the British light infantry by going towards their right, the flank along the creek. But instead, Washington's forces landed in the center, not good, where they received heavy onslaught of enemy fire. Washington's horse got shot down, and Lieutenant Colonel William Washington himself was bayoneted along with being captured. Half of the Dragoon unit was out. Only two officers survived only two officers survived the attack. Washington's unit lost roughly 29 men. It's fair to say that perhaps Washington's that Washington was not 100% familiar with the terrain he went up against. So yes, I hate to admit this, folks. That yet for well, while the Americans had done a great job of learning as much terrain as there was in South Carolina, especially under Nathaniel Greene's leadership, even the most seasoned veterans. Of, of what do you call it geographical knowledge can sometimes have a slip up and forget something that could either make or break a particular uh, segment of a battle because this battle isn't over yet folks I mean I have to, I mean I know most battles in the 18th century in the Revolutionary War lasted no more than maybe an hour at most but something tells us that this battle might last more than an hour. You know, it's one thing when an attack goes well, but when it doesn't, regardless of whose side you're on, it's, um, it's not pleasant. After holding off Washington's charge, Major Marshbanks and troops fell back to the area surrounding the brick house for cover, but now got faced against the Delaware Regiment. To their luck, British forces from the 3rd, 84th, and Provincial units were stationed close to the Brick House, which also included a fortified garden nearby that um, added an extra level of uh, cover or protection. 
The British then fired upon the 3rd, 19th, and 30th Delaware and Maryland regiments with devastating accuracy. Is it fair to say by now, at this juncture of Utah Springs battle, that American troops' discipline and morale had come apart? Well, I hate to I hate to um, provide this answer, but I'm going to have to um, admit it because it is true. The answer is yes. How did American troops' discipline and morale come apart within a short matter of time? Well, for one, many officers, and believe it or not, musicians. Now, I'm not talking musicians, folks, like today's rock and roll. Now, when we think of musicians in the 18th century in the Revolutionary War, we, we do think of fife and drummers, and we also think of those who might be playing like the flute, for example, the reason why um, I mention the musicians here is because mu um, music alone in 18th century warfare, it's not about entertainment. It's about um, keeping troops in line. How so? Because when, when a drummer drums, that means it's time for uh, the troops to... Um, to assemble their lines, it could be. It also means that the troops need to go about uh, properly marching. Music alone is all about command, just like a verbal command when an officer says, uh, "Present your arms, make ready, take aim, fire." But you know, the loss of um, officers whom were wounded, and, and, and at this point, some officers have been killed. So when an officer is killed and fife and drummers are wounded or killed, what does it result in? Breakdown behind leadership command, control of situation, to overall communication collapse. So when you have officers that are killed or severely wounded, <clears throat> who's going to take charge? Who's going to keep those troops whom, are, whom have survived whom haven't been wounded, who's going to, including the wounded, who's going to, um, who's going to look over them, who's going to restore um, order to ensure that there could be another day's worth of um, fighting down the road. You know, without order, how can an army function? And without order, who's to say that um, that discipline's going to remain intact even in the most uh, intense moments of the fight? After all, you know, we've already learned that the worst of the fighting was along the, uh, was along the uh, center, along the road, and in front of the brick house. And if troops have come under heavy fire, which they have, and officers have too, you know, it's pretty much every man for himself now. So if that's awkward enough, the British fire from the brick house barn... From the brick house, the barn, and the fortified garden took great toll on American troops whom had no sufficient means of defending themselves. Third, the British camp onto itself posed challenges. How so? Well, we have to remember, let's remember this, folks. The, any kind of encampment, it's not, no, no two encampments are going to be alike, regardless of whose side it is. But, but given how hot the, the weather had been at Utah Springs on September 8th of 1781, and those who have seen the most intense fighting, it would be fair to say that no soldier has been left behind in terms of not having seen action. All of the soldiers have. But given how hot it is, and given to where they are at now in this camp, what, what would you think most soldiers would come across? Well, to me, they're going to come across tents, they're going to come across um, other accessories like ropes, ropes which might be perhaps like the equivalent, I don't know, of like barbed wire for its time, other equipment, and maybe uh, food. I mean, of course, we're not talking grocery store food, folks, but food that, I mean, think about it. Many of these uh, soldiers are dehydrated. You know, they don't have, they probably haven't had enough food in them. After all, you know, we, we don't, we're not able to have three meals in a day, folks. We're lucky if we get one meal by now in, in terms of war. But, we're, but when we have all these um, objects surrounding us, that's going to result in troop formations breaking apart. 
So once your troop for once the formations get broken apart, good luck trying to keep the line together. Good luck with trying to maintain any proper cohesion. So if an attack does happen, can the American troops can their um can they um, get realigned? Can their formations get back into place? Probably not, because their attacks will get stalled, resulting in further disruption of the ranks within the units, and not just with disruption of ranks within the units, but um, hierarchy coming apart. A lot of, um, a lot of chaos, a lot of um, disruption that has occurred within a short matter of time, but had it not been for the um, New York volunteers stationed where they were, it might be fair to say by now at this point that the Americans would have gotten the brick house and the barn, and maybe this battle would have been over. Possible. But I also know that had Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart not been where he was, he may not have been able to have had enough time to have halted his uh, retru- his um, army's retreat. Sometimes people being at the right place at the right time, even if it's on the side of the opposition, the ones that we've often frowned upon in history books, given where certain commanders have been, have probably made the difference in um, in um, in shifting a battle's the momentum behind the greater battle. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, uh, but we are um, in a, actually, I should have said to you all from the get-go, but I'm going to say it right now before I forget that this, um, this was the first of a two-part uh, segment behind the battle developing. When I'm on the air again next, we will uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the battle developing, although it is fair to say that the battle has already developed, but we will finish talking about that piece And then when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about this British resurgence. After all, I can't admit that it has been a pretty uh, successful resurgence in a short matter of time for uh, British leaders so far. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air. And I want to thank all of you for being such ardent listeners. If it weren't for you guys, I'm not sure where I would be. But thank you again from the bottom of my heart. I hope all of you have a good rest of your weekend. Uh, Take care for now.